This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. Jim Houghton is a partner at Waypoint Partners, a leading growth and corporate finance advisory firm. What a storied background and what a fascinating conversation we had. Um, he starts his career at Arthur Anderson in the 90s. Then he goes on to Omnicom, Radiate, BDO, Results International, Ingenious. Uh, he becomes CFO for the agency 160 over 90. Then he goes on to Hellion Partners. There are only a handful of people who know as much as he does about the world of corporate M&A and the current landscape for marketing agencies because in the last five years, it's just gone crazy, uh, it seems. He's completed over 40 acquisitions for Omnicom and over 20 as an advisor. Essentially, we discuss everything from what buyers look for when deciding whether or not to buy an agency, what value looks like and, and how to realize it. So the differences between US and UK entrepreneurs and what Sir Martin Sorrell and John Wren from Omnicom are really like as businessmen and as people. If you're interested in any of those topics, I think you're going to find the conversation to be absolutely fascinating. So without me keeping you in suspense any further, my conversation with Jim Houghton. My extra special guest this week is Jim Houghton. Jim has over 25 years of international experience working with and within marketing and communications businesses on corporate finance, including M&A, exit planning, joint ventures, deal structuring, post-merger acquisition, and earnout management. I'm very much looking forward to the conversation. Jim Houghton, welcome to Agency Dealmasters. Hey, Nathan. Uh, it's really good to be talking to you. I've, I've been looking forward to speaking to you for quite some time now. We've, we've had this scheduled for, I think, a couple of months. So I'm, I'm really excited to uh, finally be speaking to you. You've had quite a fascinating and un, un, unusual background for someone that ends up in corporate finance and M&A. You graduate from Durham University with a BA in Spanish and French. Tell us how you got started in the media industry. Uh, yeah, I suppose it is kind of an unusual background. Uh, I, I guess it, it actually really all happened a long time before um, before university. Uh, I um, I grew up in a household that was uh, my dad was a, a marketer for uh, uh, Brookbond Oxo, which in the mid seventies was uh, was 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 Oxo and PG Tips. So uh, I grew up in a household where the sort of the the family entertainment was guess that advert and you know who who could be the quickest to name the ad within two or three seconds of it coming on right. and um because we uh because of the, the 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 pg tips stuff and of course this is back in the early uh 70s sort mm. of aging myself mm. the uh our dressing up wardrobe my sister and i was the uh was the pg tips chimps uh costumes from from the ads they've been filming <laughs> Which is, you know, kind of say that with uh, a slight regret now, yeah. I guess, looking back 40 years later. Yeah. But my particular favourite was the Moonraker ads. If, I don't know if you remember those, but with, and this is a terrible thing to say, really, but uh, ice skating chimpanzees in spacesuits. But they were terrific spacesuits, and my sister and I had a terrific time in them. <laughs> right. My, my, you know, my, uh, my, 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 my other favourite was the uh, Oxo family, which was mm. a kind of big thing at the time. They had some tremendous kit off the film sets, and we mm. had particularly an amazing go kart one off one ad, which you know lasted me about six or seven years. Some terrific stuff, and mm. that and that and I just had you know as a result of that, we we grew up in a 
mm. you know, a world of sort of brand and marketing and mm. kind of new products being brought home all the time. My dad, he claims he wasn't the inventor of Monster Munch, but I'm pretty sure he he was. So, you know, big bags of crisps being brought home for teenage <laughs> lads to trial out with new flavors was, oh, really? was, 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 was terrific. Huh. Um, and, and, you know, on the back of that, I wanted to be I wanted to be in the industry, but um, I wanted to be an artist and uh, I just wasn't very good. Uh, I spent many summers uh, doing storyboards on Golden Square, trying mm. to kind of, you know, as a teenager, find a career as a as an artist. But, um, you yeah, know, much to my particularly my dad's embarrassment and shame, I ended up becoming a numbers guy because that was the only way I could find my way into the industry. Quite fascinating. So your your natural kind of inclination or disposition disposition is a creative. So how did you? So so that's a that's a quite a traditional sort of right brain thinking exercise. But really, your your the way you make your living is through your left brain uh, sort of activity. Really, your corporate finance world. How did that? Was that something that was quite natural for you to kind of? go into the corporate finance and M&A world and that, and that sort of logical left brain thinking or how did, how did that materialize? Yeah. Well, I don't know how long you've got for the answer to that question, <laughs> but it's, you see, I, 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 I don't think actually the corporate finance world is, 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 a, is necessarily particularly in, in, in the media marketing services industry. Mm. I'm not sure how much of a, have a, of a logic world it is. Right, um, okay. I, you know, I think, I think the kind of mathematical and analytical skills that you need to, evidence and persuade and kind of, and, and evaluate are, re- are really important mm. but but actually uh, you know that the, the heart of uh, of understanding opportunity and and, and and helping people realize it is a much more you know creative sort of mm. empathetic it's more it's much more eq than iq i huh. think quite fascinating you know in yeah in, in sort of large scale wall street corporate finance corporate buyout type yeah. stuff i think you know you it's it's much more a, a you know a mathematical scientific exercise but mm. but owner managed businesses which is what you know this industry is baked in uh, it's, it's a different kind of game um, which i think is why you know i've i've enjoyed it and had so much fun in it for the last you know 20 odd years do you still have, do you still have any of those pictures of you and, and your sister in those um, those outfits? In the <laughs> if days? I did, do you think I'd show? <laughs> I'm sure you do. I'm sure you do. I'd love to see them. Uh, so, so you started your career at Arthur Anderson, who were one of the big five accounting firms. Um, you they ceased trading, I think, in about 2001, that sort of time, after being caught up in the Enron scandal. How do you reflect on your time at the firm? I, um, uh, it was an, it's, it, it was an amazing organization. Um, uh, yeah, hugely energetic, f- full of really, you know, using that word again, creative people, <laughs> unusual label, I guess, to, 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 to use against a firm of accountants, mm. but, you know, really creative people, you know, hugely ambitious, a very kind of pervasively American kind of ambition, the sort of can do, you know, mindset of, you know, of Eastern and, and, and mid sort of West America. Uh, and one of the things that, that, that back then, and this was uh, early 90s, I, I, I'd graduated and, and joined their graduate program, uh, an unusual organization in that it was a complete meritocracy across that business and in every office in what was a, you know, a, a single P&L, single partnership globally. Hmm. And that was a really, really unusual and actually very progressive business uh you know it, it, it it's time but you know ironically it was that sort of global single business and that global mindset that 
that meant that quite a small team of people working on one uh, individual but large client could bring down, I don't know how many people there were in our firm at the time, but it must have been tens of thousands of people um, because it was a single global business. But I really, really thoroughly enjoyed it. It was an absolute mm. privilege. I would train with some amazing, inspiring people there. Hmm. So, so what actually was their involvement in Enron? Because in preparation for this interview, I took out my uh, the book that I'm meant to be read, uh, meant to have read for the last ten years, uh, Barbarians at the Gate, and I resigned myself to try and so, sort of get through it in preparation for this. Um, <laughs> and I got sort of t- ten pages in, and then I put it down again. Um, but what was their involvement in the Enron scandal? Can you just kind of demystify that for me? Um. Yeah, well, yeah, that's a uh, the the, uh, the 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 mandate of uh, Arthur Anderson, as then was with Enron, was their was was their corporate auditors. So they had a you know the responsibility was to was to provide the stock markets with uh, a view on the you know subject to the audit norms that you know the health of, of you know of, of the business and the validity of the numbers it was putting out into the stock market. Mm. Um, you know, and the audit world has changed and audit relationships with their clients have changed like really significantly in the last 20 years as a result of you know, Enron and other kind of you know, reasonably famous or infamous mm. uh, issues that, that have happened. And um, there was a bit of a blurring about that. I, you know, I wasn't involved. It wasn't mm. a client of mine. I wasn't close to any of mm-hmm. the you know, goings on with that, that business. So I, I can't really give you a, an inside uh, view, but, but, I think as a sort of general um, general comment, 20 years ago, there was much more of a blurred boundary between um, you know, auditing, you know, expressing an independent view on a company's financial health and advising companies on, you know, on, on, on growth and maximising their business. And, you know, the, the accounting firms generally were forced to carve off their, you know, their consulting businesses to avoid conflicts of interest. And as an industry, it's you know, it's moved on dramatically as a, as, as a hmm. result. So, so you led M&A for Omnicom, uh, dealing with all manner of due diligence and acquisitions across Europe, where you frequently sat in on meetings at the highest level with Sir Martin Sorrell and John Wren from Omnicom. That must have been a pretty intimidating experience. Tell us what that was, that experience was like. Um, yeah, so, so I, I um, my, my, my role at Omnicom, it was a Funny one, because it's a, an enormous organisation. I think, like all large corporates, you know, actually, it, it's smallish teams of well-connected individuals hmm. um, who, who work as teams, and, and it, it, it never felt like a big organisation. And as a result of that, um, it, it didn't ever feel. I guess there are moments that where it's intimidating, mm. but but because you're part of a team, once you understand that you're accepted as part of a small team of individuals, mm. and you've and they've got your back as long as you've got theirs, and you and you're clearly capable of delivering, actually the intimidation effect sort of uh, disappears pretty quickly, and huh. I think that's probably true of most most organisations. Sure. My you know, my my role at Omnicom was. Um, was theoretically a you know as a, a European role rather than rather than North America, but Europe also included China and Australia sometimes as well. So it was sort of everything outside North America. Mm. Um, I, I've actually never crossed swords with Martin Sorrell at all, and if he's listening to that, that's not an invitation for us to <laughs> to, to, to to do so to in the immediate no. future. I'm right. sure I come out on the wrong side of it, mm. but um, I 
I did hear from a friend of mine who used to work at uh, Farm Street. Um, we we had just, in fact, it was one of the first acquisitions that I helped uh, Omnicom make, a fantastic research business called uh, Hall & Partners, mm. uh, where Mike Hall, the founder, had, unbeknownst to us, been building a company specifically that he thought would fit into the Omnicom organisation, which in the early 2000s didn't have any research capability really at all. Mm. Um, he'd been building something for us that he thought would be an amazing fit and presented it to to, to Michael Birkin and to, and to myself. And uh, we loved it, uh, made an offer. Uh, Mike had kind of uh, perfectly anticipated our needs and it was an amazing fit. But it turns out that uh, Sir Martin had also been uh, had his eye on that um, that business, or at least so I'm told by my friend who used to work pretty closely alongside um, Sir Martin. And um, I'm told, and I've got no... I, actually, I don't really care if this is true or not because it's mm. such a great story. I dine, mm. out, dine out on it pretty much all the time. Mm. When he heard that we bought the business, he, um, I'm told he uh, took his uh, desk chair and threw it down his uh, staircase in a fit of pique. So not that happy. may or may not be true, but mm. you know it works for me. So I'll I'll take it. That's a good one. So so you had, you, you never actually have met Sir Martin Sorrell, but from what you hear of him, w- what is your impression of of the man? From what you hear anecdotally, I um. Uh, yeah, if, if you've if you've been involved in MA in this industry for a long period of time where he's been you know in different organizations well i guess of late you know the most prolific acquirer over such a long period of time he's absolutely you know a, a, a brilliant tactician mm. uh, as much as i may not have directly come across him i'm perfectly aware of two or three deals that that i thought we had pretty much under control only to find at the last minute wpp had swooped in and mm unpicked some something for us because there'd been a brilliant tactical plan that we hadn't seen seen coming so you know, you know a brilliant tactician enormously driven and 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 you know looking at what he's achieved you know corporately for WPP and and yes you know the world around all the big holding company networks has changed on them in the last few years but you don't build that kind of success over a long period of time for different businesses without being an absolute top class operator. Sure. And I think it, that it's fine for people to have views on, you know, on personalities and uh, on ways of doing business. I think that depends on how you judge, you know, what, what, how people are being judged and what their success measures are. Hmm. His responsibility as chief exec of of S4 and, and, and previously of WPP is, you know, is build shareholder value and, um, Oh, you know, track record speaks for and itself. He's done that, yeah, definitely. How would you describe John Wren, just just quickly from Omnicom? Oh, you know, I think you know a different uh, a different kind of personality. And, and my again with the with the with the workings of the Omnicom structure, which is very devolved and and divisionalised. There's that there's you know, Omnicom as a corporate entity, and therefore John is it is very very connected to a very limited number of very senior executives in the different divisions but actually the there's there's a huge amount of devolved responsibility into those different divisions and and each of the businesses within them i think still feels despite the the wider market pressures you know reasonably autonomous so it it takes a lot as a you know as a, as a chief exec of a business of that scale and in that much uh, of a public spotlight to you know, to resist the temptation to to, to take away that entrepreneurial um, spirit mm. and uh, and I, I guess you know, this is probably the third 
I was going to say recession then, I probably don't mean that word, but this is probably the third really tough market that I've seen in this industry. And it tends, you know, about every 10 years, the clock turns into a very difficult cycle. And it feels like we're in that right now. Mm. And I remember the the one in the early 2000s that we all went through and we had agencies within the Omnicom system, not literally begging us as a management team, but really you know, wanting us, encouraging us to, to, to take a more WPP view of the world and force collaboration, force synergy to try and drive you know, some kind of uptick. And the organisation with John at the helm was absolutely principled in that's not what this business is about. You know, we, we, cannot, we cannot deprive our, our agencies of their own culture, their own operating model, sure. and and we just won't do it. So, you know, very principled, mm. uh, very you know, v- very disciplined. Mm. Um, so, yeah, you know, another kind mm. of you know, great operator. Quite quite fascinating. Let's talk a little bit about agency M and A. Um, I guess that a number of the agencies that are listening to this show wouldn't be familiar with the sort of inner workings of M and A and the the current state of the market. When I think of M and A. Personally, I think of Wall Street, I think of the financial markets, I think of big 150-storey glass buildings. Um, it seems so far removed from the life of the ordinary founder of a mid-size agency who's just got into the business because they're a creative and they love creating things and sort of adding value to clients. Do you think agencies know enough about the world of M&A and the market to make informed decisions about exit planning and the future and, and, and yeah, all the rest of it. Um, I, I, I think not only do they, but actually it's, it's more dangerous than do they not know in, in, enough. And I think your description, you know, broadly still fits of the kind of people and the kind of personality profiles of people who start you know, agencies, the sort of creative muscle leading the sort of the, you know the, the business discipline behind it mm-hmm. because it's such a tight-knit industry I mean, geographically socially there is there is so much misinformation out there uh, and misinformation that travels from peer to peer and therefore is trusted information and taken at face value at all times i mean the kind of classic i sold my business for eight times profits Great. Did you really? Well, hmm. Eight times what profits? Future hmm. profits, profit after tax, profit pre-tax. Huh. It, it, the amount, the, the not knowing what questions to ask and not knowing how to challenge what you're hearing hmm. is a is a massive problem. And you know, in 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 my position, you know, both in in my prior life as a principal, where I was you know buying businesses on behalf of a network, and now as an advisor, advising entrepreneurs on thinking about what value looks like and how to realize it, it, it generally, and I, I'd say this is probably seven times out of 10, actually undoing the misconceptions around value, you know, sometimes inflated ideas of value, sometimes massively underbaked ideas of, of, of value or kind of false expectations of rigidity in a marketplace and lack of flexibility or creativity on behalf of buyers. Undoing that can be three or four rounds of conversations and and unfortunately as a i guess you know the americans would call people like me you know, brokers when when you as a broker are sat in front in front of someone giving one point of view and a trusted peer has given another one no matter mm. what no matter how you know poor that previous advice is your advice building up a position where you are trusted 
generally which you're doing through sort of you know anecdotes and, and references uh, is really is really difficult so you're actually breaking down the the misunderstandings and getting people to a sensible starting place is a challenge in itself and then you start the education on top of that hmm. so you're finding that the agencies that you speak to don't even know what the right questions are to ask in the first place because they're misinformed yeah, yeah, or, or they they might they might have a view. They generally have a view as to what what the right questions are, mm. but they're wrong. Mm. They're they're you know, just they're plain wrong about what the right questions are, and and because they've they think they've understood a uh, a context properly, their willingness to to be sort of you know, re-educated, reinformed as to how to think about it can there can be a lot of inertia around that. Huh. So. There's a fear that when you when you go through an acquisition, you're potentially diluting your culture. And so let's maybe talk about one of those misconceptions right now, because mm. there is a fear that you're potentially diluting your culture and that um, maybe the culture that, that's gotten you where, to, where you are today may not sort of persist uh, with the acquiring company. Um, and as you're bringing on teams who may not sort of see the world in the way that you do, again, there is that risk of sort of diluting the, the, the culture that's sort of gotten you to where you are now. How important are core values and purpose, not, not only post-merger, but throughout the acquisition process? Yeah, and 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 making a, a you know there's a there's a slight distinction there with core values, purpose, I think, and culture, although they they inform each other. I think the 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 purpose and core values piece is is absolutely critical. Um, you know, your your previous question around levels of understanding. One of the other things that, and I'm sorry, this is a kind of real bugbear of mine. So you slow me down mm. if I start talking fast and my voice starts to get kind of stressed <laughs> stressed. But but. The, the number of conversations that start uh, around a financial metric or, or a deal value or a multiplier actually more commonly versus purpose. Uh, yeah, my corporate personal purpose, my, my business culture, uh, my people, me personally, what I'm looking to achieve in my business and personally, professionally is this. Mergers and acquisitions can be accelerants for that. They can help realize value around that. But that should be it should, that should be the entire conversation in my in my mind. And I say that as a, someone who's been through, I don't know, 40 acquisitions for Omnicom and I don't know, 20 or so sort of as an advisor. Mm. Um, it should always be that for there to be any success on day one or over a period of time. And you have to measure successful M&A over over a period of time as well, not just in the, in, in, in the short term, but, but quite often more for sellers than for buyers. It, it's a it's it is actually about a financial uh, ambition and, and and it can be kind of mispositioned or hidden behind some sort of corporate purpose and, and i think um people should be you know should be honest with themselves as to what their what you know, what the per, this purpose mm. really you know re, really is but yeah purpose and values mm. as they inform culture are critical to to unlocking strategic fit which unlocks value and opportunity and then once you've done that then you should be thinking about, okay, what's a fair financial framework for achieving the purpose that I have for myself and for my for my business? But very often the conversations mm. manifest themselves in reverse. Let's let's talk about this that starting point then. So for Waypoint, and we'll come on to you guys in more detail a little bit later, but does an agency come to you guys and say, you know, when they're ready and when they're big and successful and say, you know, help us find an acquirer or, or an investor because we'd like to grow? Or... Does the agency 
get in touch several years before that once they have the idea of potentially exiting one day or being acquired and then ask for your help to get them to a point where a potential acquirer would be interested? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I would love it if all prospective clients and clients came to us two to three years ahead of <laughs> uh, ahead of something happening. You know, the reality yeah. is and that, because our business and I know we'll, we'll talk a little bit about our, our firm later, but our business isn't a we're not we're not a, a, a deal shop. We, we 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 advise agency boardrooms across across the boardroom sort of uh, topic spectrum and M&A is one of our specialisms because it plays a part in you know in in the life of agencies and the people that that, that own them not you know not for the sake of the tra- transaction itself so so people will come to us as a firm for, for different things uh, at different stages in their business life cycle but the typical experience of the M&A advisor is so 70 percent of our of our clients or prospective clients will be coming to us with a sort of general thought about something in their business hmm. and they are coming to us because you know at some point in the future they may they may feel like that there should be an event around a transaction that that you know crystallizes value for them but if you're if you're a pure play m a advisor that equation's probably on its on its head probably 70 percent of the time someone's coming to you saying to you look within the next six to nine months I, I, I want I want a deal done and actually then you'll try to work out if the deal done means they'd like to have a check hit their bank account because right. they've signed a deal with someone mm-hmm. actually often what it means is the individual wants to have left their business within the next nine to 12 months hmm. in which case you should have had that conversation three years previous five I years see. previous mm. uh, so it, it around transactions it um and, and we're still although I said earlier this is a you know a challenging market it's still a market with a lot of M&A activity, and, and there has been through every economic cycle mm. in, in this industry over the last three decades. There's still a lot of inbound um, M&A activity. Mm-hmm. So you're running a successful agency with growth, with good capabilities, with some form of profile. You, you'll get people coming to you, and you know, often entrepreneurs aren't in complete control of their destiny and their timetable because. The, irresist- the irresistible offer just lands. You're not expecting mm. it. You haven't gone looking for it. It happens. Mm. And I would think as much as sort of 25% of the time, that's the trigger. It's not actually someone proactively thinking about planning for the future. Right. Some Someone's doing their own planning somewhere else and has identified a potential fit, a solve, you know, a, a solution. Mm. And, and that company happens to be it. And um, that then triggers a whole a response process which you're trying to sort of manage mm. quickly and uh, and deliver without you know at, at, a, at a proper fair value for everyone so and and, and thinking you know making absolutely business critical decisions and, and more than business critical this is you know most agency businesses that we work with are you know 50 to 250 people so you know, probably your ownership team are the same as the management team they probably poured 10 to 20 years of their lives into building this thing up it's much more than just a business transaction it's 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 everything for these people it's it's career it's you know it's 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 family it's it's it's, it's completely personal Mm, definitely claudia higgins who is a a consultant to um marketing agencies formerly of, of hubspot she she recommends that agencies have an answer in their head for when that phone does ring because at some point it may ring and there may be a potential acquirer, acquirer on, on the other line. 
And she recommends that agencies think about what their response would be if the phone does ring. Um, what's your response to that? Should they have like a default answer? Or should they start thinking about it now if, you know, an Omnicom does come calling at some point in the future? I don't know. She sounds great, but she sounds great. I might, <laughs> might need her phone number. Um, I, I mean, yeah, I, I, I think that's probably right. It, it's, um, yeah, I, I hadn't, I hadn't heard that, but uh, yeah, yeah, I, 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 th- I think ideally, yes. Mm. Um, the the answer might change. I think probably not on a quarter by quarter basis, but it might change from year to year, and it might depend on you know, n- new individuals entering the entering the boardroom or the shareholder group. But on a sort of annual basis, as part of your planning for the year ahead, which I do hope all agencies are, are doing mm. um, at least annually, then that, I think that's a great question to to, to to be thinking about because quite often people when they're looking for it proactively and going out and trying to find the event, um, they, they haven't thought about it soon enough. Mm. You know, growth in the business might have started slowing up and, 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 and you know, perhaps the, the trigger is more sort of defensive than, than, than progressive. So, yeah, I, I think, yes, I, I, and I'd actually be slightly disappointed if I were the person putting the call in and not being able to get, you know, a, a lunch where I hit, you know, within, within the following week where mm. I hear something like that, where it mm. shows where it shows a management team that's got a view on its destiny and is trying to be in a driving seat rather than allowing the market to sure. dictate to it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I'll go with that. Yeah, no, definitely. So so what sort of agencies do you tend to help the most then? Is it those agencies that are experiencing a lot of organic growth? Uh, perhaps they want to go through an acquisition, but uh, you know, maybe they want to add new offices internationally. Uh, I don't know. What, what tends to be the criteria of those agencies that Waypoint tends to help the most. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 tough to to, to generalise on the particular kind of growth imperative that drives the conversation, but I think it you know it's it's fair to say that it's it, it is always some thread of growth that's that's driving it. It's either desire to accelerate it. It's a client that's 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 putting growth onto you and you and you can't respond to it. It's 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 lack of growth. It's diversifying into different territories. It it, it can be it can be all of those. Mm. It can be all of those things. Um, you know, I guess you know, fortunately, although we did have one instance sort of earlier on this spring, we we we've we seldom have people coming to us because their world is falling apart and it's a it's, it's a rescue mission. But I guess which in itself is another derivative of of growth. Trying to find it when. You know, all help is sort of dis- all, all hopes disappearing. Mm. But yeah, yeah, in, in t- the, the kinds of things that stretch people completely outside their comfort uh, zone, where they and and both in terms of their experience set, professional experience set, and their own personal risk tolerance, tends to be either a big diversification play, and that's risk. It's opportunity, but it's risk, or international, where. Actually, I'm, I'm sitting here now, a client saying to me, I've got to be on the West Coast of the US. Look, I can't, I just can't put my personal balance sheet through that. I can't remortgage the house. And But I, but some, someone will have some experience of how, of how to help me with that. That's that's typically the sort of environment we're called in for. And, and the sort of the level uh, behind that is probably the growth momentum is already there. But the agency is being pulled so hard on the top line by a client 
that the corporate infrastructure just can't keep pace with the clients. Huh. So you'll have businesses that have gone from 50 to 100 staff in, in quick order or they've gone from you know, one office to three in different lo- in you know, wildly remote locations in the space of 18 months. And you know, they're still trying to run the business out of some Excel spreadsheets and on conference calls. And the whole thing starts to creak. To creak. And, and you get that classic, you know, o- over trading yeah. um, environment, which, you know, it's. It's it's the sort of glib comment, I mean, nice problem to have, but mm. but it, it is a serious problem, and there are a, any number of UK agencies in particular who've who've had the lure of the US, where a client has has, has asked them to come on board, and as a result, they've trashed the entire organisation, you know, and and not because the client has sought for that to happen, of course, but they've just not been able to keep up with their demand. So yeah, we're really lucky to have businesses that that are you know consciously aware of their inability to respond who go looking for advice and mm. and, and come talk to us well, let, well let's talk a little bit about waypoint then that that's a nice segue you guys have really pulled together a sort of a world-class team of, of advisors from miles welts uh, juliana richer who's formerly of edelman phil gripton who was on the show recently brett davis who everyone just seems to know about whenever i mention waypoint Tell us a little bit about your team. Who are the partners and, and what does everyone do? Yeah, so the um, our, our partner group, and this comes back to the, your, 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 your previous question around, uh, around when people come to us. Um, our partner team, we, we, all share, um, we all share a common background in that we've all spent time as principals in agency boardrooms in senior executive positions with a functional expertise and often with a sort of subsector expertise so we're a we're we're a matrix organization within within that partner group in that we all share common reference framework common personal experiences we've all had our own you know personal balance sheets stretched and challenged by sitting in those boardrooms we've not all just been corporate network employees mm. along along the way mm. um, but each of us has a functional expertise mine being on the mergers and acquisitions side in those environments so as a unit and we must be i suspect probably the, the heaviest users of blue jeans and video calling globally by now i think <laughs> in terms of hours per week per partner sure. we, we we're the understanding through the same experience set the, the dilemmas and opportunities of being in a boardroom plus being able to talk to each other so you know phil who i i, I know you know and is is a pretty tough act to follow frankly he's an absolute expert in in sales functions mm. in agencies mm. so he and i understand the agency boardroom challenge he's looking at it through one functional area i'm looking at it through another mm. and we've all got to a place where we've gathered sufficient experience and, and sufficient different experience in different organizations and different geographies where we can pull that and so yeah it works really well it works really well across all of us huh. so so you say that there are three conditions for successful acquisitions um one is do they see the world in the same way that we do number two is culture do they fit culturally with us number three is are they experiencing profitable growth discuss uh yeah blimey that's uh uh that's a quote from my um the guy who hired me into omnicom noel penrose who um my first sort of my first few weeks of coaching from him when i moved from anderson's to to omnicom was uh, that's fine what you've seen what you've seen before in helping us as an advisor on deals was the financial side of the equation Mm. that's purely purely hygiene 
and it should be hygiene for everyone. You know, if, if, if the financial metrics don't work, well, you can't have a conversation. But more fundamental even than that, even if the financial hurdles do work, I mean, if, you know, if you're a quoted company or if you're backed by an institution and you have to deliver certain financial returns, mm. if the mathematics can't work, then OK, it's easy to understand that that's sure. not a conversation that you can have and you can be disciplined about it. The much tougher and actually much more important questions are exactly the ones you've just uh, outlined. And, and they, they're reciprocal on buyer and seller. Sure. Do both parties see the world the same way? Mm. Um, we were we were advising a business um, recently where from a from a financial perspective, all the metrics measure up amazingly well from a capabilities and geography perspective, a, a, a terrific fit between the, the two. And but at the end of the conversation, uh, the person on the other side of the table just it made a really, really perceptive comment to, 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 to us, which uh, the first time I'd heard it, it was a brilliantly refreshing thing to hear where he concluded that we are an amazing organizational fit, but culturally um, we probably just didn't see the world the same way because the pack that we'd presented to them um, had had one female face in it. And, mm. and, and it was a bit of a light bulb moment for both of us, because my, my client and myself, because mm. the way the organization works um, – is is and it's a it's in a in a segment of the market where diversity but you know, on all fronts is 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 really important and operationally mm. it runs that way but the senior management lineup just didn't appear to reflect that and it mm. was so so and that ruled ruled and that ruled out the conversation out. Yeah, everything everything fits but because right. your boardroom makeup isn't isn't acceptable huh. to us or we we don't understand why you'd have a board that looked like that right because that shows you're not thinking about things the way we are yeah that we just we can't really not progress this okay even if the numbers uh, uh, make sense and on paper, well, the, the business and, makes and sense. Uh, all all rational uh business uh you know client fit capabilities fit joy everything works yeah. but actually if you haven't stopped and thought that this is going to look and feel odd to me that says that we probably aren't going to understand each other because it's right at the top of my priority list mm. and um but as i say that was it was it was surprising in, in that that had never happened to me and having advised on lots of deals before i've I, you know I, I it's the first time i've come up i think it's it, it's terrific that it did mm-hmm. um uh, uh, but but that point around do we see the world the same way can manifest itself in lots of different uh, in, in different ways, um, and it can be around, you know, what are your business priorities generally, like diversity and inclusion. Uh, but it can be particularly the point you raised around profitable growth, and it's it's a little more than is someone experiencing it. Actually, if you're, you know, most corporations, either quoted companies or ones that are funded privately but by professional investors, that they need to feel like they're backing management teams who understand that. You know, notwithstanding requirements for corporate social responsibility, um, the primary responsibility that they have is to the financial stakeholders to deliver a financial return. And therefore, if you if you are not thinking about your business as a business that you are in to make money, as opposed to do nice work that makes money by happenstance, then then actually probably it's going to be quite a challenging conversation with any. Uh, major corporation or or professional investor. Well, let's talk a little bit about that then. Have you seen agencies that that have had two of the three 
of those criteria and it hasn't worked out. So maybe they've, you know, the business has worked out well on, on paper. Um, maybe they do have a cultural fit to a certain extent, but maybe mm. they, they haven't seen the world in the same way. That's the only one that that is missed out. Do they have, do we have to have all three in all scenarios or have you seen scenarios where having two, you know, one of the three yeah. works just fine? I, I think, um, and this is where the lure of money can can kind of pervert the proper working of of M and A. Uh, if 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 people approached an M and A conversation and thinking about it as, as as changing employer, you know, moving from job to job, and and there wasn't a ten million dollar you know windfall heading in their direction shortly afterwards, hmm. I think it would make life a lot easier because sure. actually you you would ask you'd ask yourself those three questions and you wouldn't make the move unless. You, you knew all three questions were being strongly answered in, yeah, you know, in the affirmative. And you know, one of the things that uh, kind of has, has really raised sort of the, you know, riot smile, I suppose, on my face in the last five or six years has been the management consultants coming onto the scene in, you know, such a front and centre way. I I can't think of a single conversation I've I've had either as an advisor prior to Accenture buying Karma or as a principal at Omnicom, where the, the most important things that I was being told, either by someone who was selling their business to me or as a potential client of mine, was always about the culture. It was always about autonomy. It was always about brand. Interesting. And the management consultants uh, rock up and they offer a world that um, and look, you know, there's not been slam bang integration on mm. any of the kind of any, any of the major deals that have happened yet. But if you're a McKinsey or an Accenture or a Deloitte or an EY, you know, your brand will be the dominant brand at some point in the future. It's just got higher brand value. So uh, there's a sort, there's also a sort of time element to your question. Within within five years, those brands surely logically got to be subsumed. And I think you know at that point, buyers come into the market with a different purchasing model, changes the makeup of that ten million dollar. Mm-hmm windfall or maybe the 10 million becomes 15 million in some instances because there's a land grab going on and suddenly culture is not the most important thing and people are suddenly prepared to be uh, a subsidiary business and be told that they're coming along to the next pitch and they will be the shiny new button for clients to play with um look for me those three questions are absolutely critical but 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 equally often and we've not talked about it so far often the trigger for the you know for the M&A event is nothing to do with the company at all and there's there's a I'm not sure if it's kind of that widely used but I think so in in, in sort of M&A circles you talk about triple d um death divorce and disease you know yeah. the sort of the, the the human factors yeah that that trigger people to need to realize money and uh, the financial side of the equation can't be, you know, can't can't, can't be ignored. Um, and unfortunately, when when deals do go wrong, and I've, I've, you know, I've seen a few that haven't worked out as well as people would have liked, and maybe they work out for a couple of years, but then the inherent tensions start, you know, becoming more apparent and more pervasive. Um, it, it's because someone's, you know, taken the highest offer, or they've they've pushed the negotiation so hard that they have to, you know, pay back something later in return, and that. Mm over time breaks it so yeah the corrupting influence of money i'm afraid on on the on the more important stuff in my mind 
you you talked about diversity and inclusion earlier. Um, critics of, of diversity and inclusion often argue that it shouldn't really be about hiring more women and minorities. It should be about getting the most qualified person for the job. Um, what what are your thoughts on that? Uh, well, look, I mean, I that's a I, I would like I would like to agree with that statement, mm-hmm. uh, but I I just don't think that's realistic. Um, the, you know, I'm 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 a capitalist. I don't mind saying I'm mm-hmm. a capitalist, but I, I'm not I'm not a free market economist. I I, I know that 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 the capital markets aren't perfect and if you take a, a business model in practice and uh, sorry and, and deploy it in practice it just doesn't work and the employment markets don't work perfectly and it, w- it would be terrific to think that in my professional lifetime or maybe in my lifetime lifetime you could answer that question yes but a lot would have to change in terms of corporate practices and composition of boardrooms and management teams before you could ever say that and, and you know until such time as the flaws in the systems and the yeah and the background balance um, in, in boardrooms and senior management echelons is, is corrected mm. you ca- as much as you'd like to answer yes you you can't you, you need to have corrective uh, measures in the system to prevent to prevent the flaws in the system and and to and to actively rebalance I, I, I firmly believe that no, it, it, it's it's very true and one of the most powerful arguments that i've heard for dni is that it changes the sorts of questions that are actually asked in the boardroom in the first place you know there are several studies that have found that when we have a more of a diverse group of of people approaching a particular challenge they tend to ask different questions which which results in very different outcomes what's your experience of that the whole idea of sort of reducing unconscious bias and group think and all the rest of it yeah, well, look, in, in principle, I mean, that just makes kind of perfect common sense. In terms of my practical, you know, experience, you know, I guess on the one level, I was the only English person working in an English-speaking but Philadelphia marketing agency mm. specialising in US higher education. Although we were speaking the same language but in slightly different accents, mm. my entire wiring was completely different from mm. every other person in that 150-person office and and that's you know if if you'd walked into our boardroom you would you you you'd hardly expect the 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 level of that there'd be such, difference such, to such see a such stark yeah. contrast and and that 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 oughtn't to be very mm. pronounced i think given what i've spent the last 20 odd years doing where you're at pivotal moments in 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 the existence of companies and their owners where where everything is really sort of supercharged and in, and intense at the moment at which I'm about to crystallise my business or acquirer is about to put down tens of millions of dollars to do something or fundamentally change their business. Mm. Um, you, you see those differences of wiring, cultural differences in particular, lang- and, and also then compounded by language differences. But you you see it all the time, and mm. I've had the you know the great privilege of working across Europe, into Asia, into Australia. Uh, and the the differences that the different way that the same conversation plays out with different cultural groups is 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 absolutely stark. I mean, it it's and 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 if you could harness that that same dynamic and deploy it positively in boardrooms and in businesses, it would be a huge power for good. 
but yes, I mean, I see it all the time. Mm. Either, uh, it, it, negotiating, uh, you know, in Beijing on behalf of the guys at We Are Social in 2012 mm. was a very different experience from talking to somebody in, in, in you know, in, 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 in Paris, for example, or in New York. And Interesting. Well, let's let's talk about that for, for a moment before we get into our favourite questions towards the back end of the interview that, that I ask all of my guests. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Um, so you've worked with some of the best founders and entrepreneurs from the UK, uh, Europe, uh, um, Australia, the US, as you, as you mentioned, and, and Asia. What are some of the main differences that you see in the way that entrepreneurs think and operate on both sides of the pond, you know, from the UK and the US, let's say? Yeah. Uh, and, and I think you can draw a parallel East Coast, US and and, and mainland China okay. as well, I think, in, in some respects as oh, well. Right. I, uh, I think, you know, and I'm a fairly sort of traditional conservative with a small C Brit. Um, and I think we are somewhat hardwired. And so I hope my children don't grow up quite with the same level of wiring that I have, mm. that, that failure is not an acceptable thing. You know, it's it's avoiding failure is more important than achieving success or mm. happiness. And, and therefore, um, lots of suboptimal decisions get made. People feel like they're in control of their destiny when they never really are. And by trying to avoid failure, you absolutely rule out success. And hmm. you probably don't rule out failure that well either, to be honest. <laughs> true, you just maybe you just maybe kind of reduce the impact when the inevitable happens, but sure. it will still happen. So I, I think that's that's the if you know if if we had to summarise one particular feature, yeah, uh, uh, one sort of stereotypical feature, I, I think that desire to achieve success versus desire to avoid failure A higher would risk be characteristic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yes. Well, an acceptance of an of acceptance. risk in exchange yeah. of, of, of of in exchange for the upside in the reward. And sure. I've I've seen that strongly in India, China, and and, and the US um, consistently. And I see that I see risk avoidance being you know fifty fifty risk avoidance back to that sort of question around you know purpose risk avoidance and mitigating downside being mm. quite often the central theme in the conversations you have with uh british entrepreneurs yeah and that's you know it's really uh, interesting do you see that in europe as well is that something that extends to europe or is it just the, the uk britain um I, I i i i have more experience of southern than than than, than eastern europe yeah. And I certainly see um, I've got some great friends, friends that I've made through deals in Spain and Italy in particular, the, the sort of the hard charging, highly emotive um, business drivers, uh, a, a great fun, great fun to work with. But I don't think that's quite the same, quite the same thing. I think mm. there's also a there's a slight level of sort of dispassion. Uh, in 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 US uh, business practices and, and maybe also in China that 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 you don't get when you're dealing in in, in southern Europe. That's mm. also a real it's a real benefit to, to to people kind of operating at their best of mm. being able to be dispassionate. Mm. Yeah, I, I always remember there's a Silicon Valley VC firm. I can't remember who it was, but it's one of the most famous ones. Um, I'm drawing a blank on it now, but. In their boardroom, in the in the reception, when you walk in, it shows you the first thing you see are all the the tech startups that they passed on. So go down the list, you know, Facebook, Uber, <laughs> yeah. Google, you know, all the rest of it. Yeah, yeah. And it, it just, but despite that, they're very successful. Obviously, they've you know they've had some huge wins. 
but it's just to show, look, we mess up all the time, we fail all the time, but it's fine, it's accepted, it's almost, uh, it's it's uh, embraced. Um, and to your point, it's, you know, they don't shy away from it in the same way that we shy away from it here. And I thought that's, that's a really interesting way of looking yeah. at it. Yeah. Hmm. Quite fascinating. Okay, well, let's get into our final questions towards the back end of the interview. These are the questions that I ask all of my guests. Um, tell us about a time when you failed and what you learned from the experience. Um, well, I suppose that's, a, that, that's an easy one, I think. I mean, you and I are talking here today solely because I failed. I, I, you know, back to where we started. Hmm. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I, you know, I failed. I, yeah. I, I, you know, I and I, I've, I've done a bunch of careers talks at my daughter's school mm. you know, recently, where people have, lots of people in the marketing industry, uh, parents of my daughter's school, and um, how did you get into the industry? I'm the only person who sends, puts their hand up and says, "Yeah, I, I failed my way in," <laughs> and I'm fine. Yeah. You know, I'm unashamed and yeah. uh, delighted to be talking to you today as a result. Huh. Tell us about some of your early mentors. Who influenced your approach to corporate finance and M&A? I, I imagine there's going to be a murderer's row of some amazing people. <laughs> Don't tell them you're calling a murderer's. I, 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 um, I, I think I've got two really strong influences. And I think one of them would recognize himself as an influence on me. The other one, perhaps less so, because we didn't really have that many and get that much engagement directly with each other. But everyone we did has really stuck with me. Both of them are Omnicom guys, or formerly Omnicom guys. Noel Penrose, who who was into brand and then and then joined uh, Omnicom, who taught me the M and A skills and the you know trust your gut, uh, don't try, do you know be fair first time, mm-hmm. think about culture. He was he an amazing influence, and and Michael Birkin who. Um, who's the chief executive of Q and, and former senior exec at, at Omnicom and ran Omnicom in, in Asia. was just a, a, a brilliant man, uh, a brilliant and, and a man who led by, leads by example. And that's really kind of rubbed off on me, or at least I try and make it rub off on me. Hmm. Okay. Two, uh, two new uh, podcast guests for me to reach out to. Thank you very indeed, much for that. Indeed, indeed. Uh, <laughs> tell us about some of your favorite books. What are you reading, listening to these days? Well, um, I kind of, at university, I pretty much read myself to death. Okay, I think I was probably on about a hundred books a week. I would oh guess my God. Uh, something like that. So, but those are the books then, that you had to read. Uh, well, oh, I probably they? had to. I probably had to read about a quarter of them, and oh, the okay. rest just sort of, you know, happened because I found right. it all fascinating. Right. So, so, so I have to confess, in the what is it now, twenty-seven years since I graduated uh, university, my reading yeah. habits have sort of Dropped eased off, off a clear. bit. Right. Um, I, but, but I still pick up every couple of years. I still pick up 100 Years of Solitude, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, okay. which I just, I mean, it's, and I, I could probably read it every year uh, on holiday and never get bored with reading it and reading huh. it and reading it. Uh, and because I've read so much and I think been spoilt by, you know, some of the real classics along the way through, yeah. you know, from my education background, I only ever pick up classics. So um, one book, if you've not read it, that I would absolutely caution you not to read yeah. is Moby Dick. I really? Normally, don't read I, I it. Nor- I, know I normally take a classic on my summer holidays, yeah. and uh, that, that took me two entire summer holidays to force myself to read because it was just such hard work. Hard so, work. Um, 
what the writing was bad or just not a very good story what what's the problem Moby well, Dick I mean this is, these I, are classics it is a classic and I only ever read the classics but that's yeah. one to to avoid okay. um, your listeners may disagree with me yeah. but uh, it's if you, you, if you like it. detailed descriptions of of whales and whale chases what, for I think six six or seven hundred pages yeah um, that's exactly the thing you should pack in your, uh, your summer holiday. Yeah, yeah, okay, makes makes sense. I'll, I'll I'll avoid that. I buy the classics as well, but they normally just sit there. Um, I just like to, <laughs> I like, like people to see that I have them, but you know, I don't actually read them. Um, tell us what's the most interesting thing people don't know about your background. I think I've probably told you all of it this morning. <laughs> right, all I'm of my all deep dark secrets are right. failure out there. <laughs> all right, let's move on then. Um, so when I'm going through difficult patches, I remind myself of inspirational quotes from people that I admire to get me through, like Viktor Frankl's Between Stimulus and Response, There's Choice, From the Magic of Big Thinking, How Big We Think Determines the Size of Our Accomplishments, or Action Cures Fear. Do you have any of those things that you fall back on in, in tough times? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yes. Yes, I do. I, I, I think I'm just like you in that respect. Mm. I, I don't no real short form uh, things like that. There aren't sort of one or two kind of like snappy catchphrases mm. that I can sort of hit myself up with in a meeting if I'm feeling like, you know, I, I need to sort of regather myself. But, but my my response in situations like that is to try and step myself back, give myself a bit more space and uh various different verses of rudyard kipling's if will always sort of come to my mm. you know to come to come to my aid i think um pretty much every every human challenge and emotion and kind of and correct you know proper response to it and how to put things in a context sits in that poem and if you can if you can spare yourself two or three minutes just to sort of um you know flip through it um it's pretty easy to reality set on you know, actually, this is a difficult negotiation. Like, you know, life goes on. There'll be a there'll be a tomorrow. It's a for me. It's a it's a terrific pick me up and uh, and just a reset when I'm feeling like there's pressure on me. So it's Roger Kipling's if what what did you say the name yeah. was if yeah I, I yeah F. yeah huh yeah okay and you've you've used that in in sort of difficult times. It's 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 not very often that I hear a poem being used as a way of kind of getting you through tough or difficult situations but it, it does that for you oh yeah yeah completely mm. when you think about you know the the slings and arrows and all the other kind mm. of um you know the the phrases that mm. that have been extracted from that poem over time oh to, is that where that comes know, to, from yeah yeah <laughs> oh, really? yeah well there you go so it, it might be the that two or three of your phases are kind of you know are, are pulled from there but really um, it's you know for like six verses or whatever it is it's yeah it's it's a whole life lesson in one poem huh fascinating okay what what advice would you give to a young person who wants to start their career in the corporate M&A world in the corporate M&A world look there are so pick, pick which of those worlds you're you're aiming for there there are two worlds of corporate M&A there's big corporate they're the stuff which doesn't have any human aspect to it at all which is really safe it's remote it's conducted by spreadsheet video call and analysis and and, and, and papers and, and, and committees. Uh, and then there's the, uh, there's the stuff where real human beings are involved uh, and they're completely different worlds. And for some people, the bit which has got the human element in it where, you know, you see someone's face fall or collapse or indeed I've seen people reduce to tears before where something, you know, goes horrendously wrong in a, in a deal. The human side of it 
is hugely compelling and you can make a massive difference to individuals but it's a real that's a real roller coaster and you know with all the good times with all the people whose lives you can change for the for the good there are you know inevitably there are some not so good experiences as well Hmm. and then there's a you know there's a technical discipline which is building a spreadsheet for the billion dollar takeover of i don't know what um i wouldn't my, my advice would be don't do that for a living. There are more re- rewarding ways to spend your life than sitting in front of a spreadsheet or writing papers for committees. Go and get in front of people and make an actual real change and ride the roller coaster that goes with it. <laughs> quite, quite fascinating. And my final question, Jim, what is it you know about the media, M&A and corporate finance world today that you wish you knew at the beginning of your career? Well, I guess I guess I wish I'd known it would still be here in 30 years time. It hmm. felt pretty precarious a couple of points along the way. And I think, you know, because of that, I was probably thinking at some point I'd need to be finding myself a job somewhere else. So you kind of lose your focus on on the opportunity and the, and the fun you're having as a as a, as a result. Um, yeah, I, I, I think, you know, if, I, if I'd known that the industry would look the way it does today, hmm back in the early 1990s um i would have thrown myself into it even more wholeheartedly and not allowed myself to get distracted by anything uh, at all um but yeah it's it's felt kind of precarious along the way and that's that's been a you know that, that's been a distraction at times any regrets that you're not an artist every day every day nathan <laughs> but you know what you've got to You've got to face your limitations in life. To sleep. Yeah, I, I will. Sense. I promise you that when I when I finally hit retirement, yeah. whenever that is, I will uh, I will become an enthusiastic amateur painter, and I won't be <laughs> I won't be good, but I'll enjoy myself. Yeah, and no one will have to look at it apart from me. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for doing this, Jim. Absolute pleasure. We have been speaking with Jim Houghton. He is currently a partner at Waypoint Partners. Thank you for all your feedback and suggestions on LinkedIn and email. We're not going to ask you to subscribe or give a five-star review or share this episode with your friends because our thinking is if the content is any good, you'll willingly do that anyway. We'll leave that decision up to you. Email me at Nathan at agencydealmasters.com. I'm Nathan Anibaba. You've been listening to Agency Deal Masters. <laughs>